Yay, uh, she can spell. <laughs> You're like, who is this? What am I listening to? What is happening right now? Hi, thanks for tuning in. You're listening to Zabuma Foolish with me, your host, Jalen. Just actually call me Jay. I don't know why I do that every episode. Anyway, uh, let's just get into the episode. <laughs> Hey, yippee yo, hey girl, what it do? It's your girl, Cornbread, and her sister, Macaroon. Uh, uh, R.I.P. Chichi Devane. Sorry, that was just in my head. I don't know why. The little rap. We've, we've made it. We've made it. We got through the intro, okay? <laughs> we made it to Animal of the Week. Welcome. Hi. So for this week's Animal of the Week, I wanted to continue on this sort of theme of highlighting different relationships within the animal world and by continue I mean just produce it out of nowhere because I don't think I talked about this at all during the last episode but if I did shout out to me in continuity so this week we're going to be talking about symbiosis symbiotic relationships and yeah why well because as y'all know love uh, a good reflective moment and I just like being able to not only see like myself within like the wider animal world uh, and animal community, it just gives me like a more deeper sense of connection. But I also like to see the relationships that I practice also being practiced by non-human animals. And so this kind of like give and take that we're all very familiar with where you like maybe give something that you are not like it's at like no cost to you and then you get something from someone by giving them that thing and then they give you a thing and they get a thing i'm being really confusing right now <laughs> i'm sorry to explain symbiosis and symbiotic relationships it's essentially like you get something by being in relationship with someone else and why are we bringing that up why are we talking about that because this week's animal of the week is coral yeah coral Coral reef. Come to the coral. I'm sorry. So, yeah, a lot of people think that corals are animals. Nope, that's not true. A lot of people think that they're plants. And, I mean, they are sessile, which just means that they don't move. And they are very, like, plant-like in shape. Um, so I can understand why people get confused. But the gag is, sis, they are animals through and through. Like, they're literally, like, they're full-on animals. They have a mouth, they have a stomach, they have tiny little arms, a.k.a. tentacles. They eat. Yeah, so a lot of people don't, like, see corals and think about that or, like, immediately connect with them because they're like, that's a plant, right? I can't connect with that. No, gag, you and corals, two degrees of separation. Um, the water. And so... Let's just maybe break down that relationship a little bit more. What does that symbiotic relationship look like? So corals themselves, you have two major groups of corals, right? So you have the stony or the hard corals, and then you have soft corals. Now, they operate similarly in the sense that they both, like both groups of corals will develop a symbiotic relationship with these microscopic algae or algae. I don't really, I don't have a preference for how you say that word, but... 
corals and these microscopic algae, they work together so that each other can like live and grow and reproduce within the open ocean. Now, a lot of y'all, let's like take a little bit more of a macro approach because a lot of y'all will be like, uh, why do they even need to form this symbiotic relationship in the first place? Like, what's the tea? Aren't there other animals around? Like, can't you just do your own thing like we all, like everyone else? <laughs> no, okay? And that's because, th let's like look at the history of it. Like corals and their symbiotic relationship with this microscopic algae dates back to like the Triassic period, like way, 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 way back in time. And the reasoning for that, right, why, why might we see two species develop a symbiotic relationship? Well, gag, let's look at what the oceans were like 400,000 years ago. I'm not a geologist, so don't hold me to that. I don't know how long ago the Triassic period was. But it was a long time ago, and I, do, I can give you a little sense of what was happening in the oceans. <laughs> they were developing. That's right. Not a lot going on in terms of nutrient availability, in terms of biodiversity. And in so, in order to survive in a place where there's not a lot going on yet, they formed this community, this relationship, this bond that would help each other not only grow and survive in this ocean environment, but allow them to actually thrive. They like are then become they become like specialists. They become very, very successful at not only like trapping nutrients from the ocean, but then utilizing those nutrients to grow and create biophysical structures that then attract other things and, and other forms of, of plant life to then grow on. And, and as you see, they, they, bam, you have a community, bam, you have a coral reef formed, right? All because of these like low nutrient conditions that required their initial team up in the first place. Now, how this team up has evolved over time, well, there's a little bit of a change, right? So with our soft corals, they actually make this like external skeleton. It's made of limestone um, or like a li calcium bicarbonate, I think is the scientific name for it. Again, not a geologist. And so they'll make these like little harder skeletons that then fuse to rock or other dead soft, uh, soft coral. And in this way, they like build up and they can actually like become these really massive structures, at least soft corals, right? The difference is with hard corals, the polyps that make up hard corals will actually like all aggregate, grow, and die. And so this like cycle is repeated over time, slowly layering, right, these layers of calcium carbonate or these like limestone layers that then form the foundation for coral reefs. And they give shape to a lot of the corals that like we see and we can recognize. And it's because of this cycle, right, of like of growth and death and regeneration of these individual polyps on hard corals, sorry, on hard, on hard corals that many of these like hard coral uh, species are very, very old, right? This layering of, of constantly growing and regenerating over time. You have like brain corals out here in the ocean that are like over 900 years old, gag gag me with a DeLorean. Like, that is, ah, that's too much. 900? Like, what have you seen, sis? 
<sighs> rising ocean temperatures. Yes, you have. But we're going to get into that a little bit later. Because I just want to, I, I feel like I haven't done a good enough job at explaining like what is actually happening with this relationship, what's happening in terms of the coral and the algae. So you have this microscopic algae, dinoflagellates, or more specifically like zoothaniales. Again, don't hold me to the pronunciation of Latin. But yeah, so these these little home skillets, they live up inside of the coral's tissue, right? Inside of the actual like cellular structure of coral. And these microscopic algae, cysts, they get to work every day when the sun puns shine, right? They get to the photosynthesizing lives. They get the little juice going and they start to create and produce the required nutrients for corals to grow, for these animals to live underwater and be successful. So what did the algae provide? Well, <laughs> gag is that the algae, or algae, again, don't care about how you pronounce it, they remove waste products that the coral produces through, through metabolism. So remember, corals are animals. They have mouths. They have little arms. They eat. Okay? They metabolize. And then the food that they metabolize gets turned into these waste products that the algae can then use to help grow and continue its photosynthetic processes. Also, maybe I'm making an assumption. I just assume that we all listening to this podcast know what photosynthesis is. But just in case, uh, it is like when the sun gives, you know, plants their lives, a little bit of energy, yum, yum, yum. The plants take that energy. They turn it into sucrose, into fructose, into all these different nutrients that they then need to grow. Gag. Like, <laughs> talk about a situation ship. Red Table Talk, Jada. Okay, moving forward. I am so ADHD, y'all. Like, it's as soon as something pops into my mind, it's like I just, bam, immediately go there and then have to backtrack back to what we're talking about, which is corals, algae, the symbiotic relationship, gag, looking at what they get and what they produce to each other. So you might think that, like, okay, algae are getting, like, a pretty good deal, right? Like, they get all of these waste products that they then use to, like, for their own growth. They then get, like, the protection from the coral. They get this, like, safe space to, like, do their thing, okay? And you're like, okay, well, what does what does the algae provide for the coral? Like, what are you giving back in this relationship, right? You know, it's like a two-way street. What is the tea here? So the algae produce oxygen. They remove waste for the coral, right? And so... In this way, you kind of have a, this situationship, this relationship, this symbiosis where the algae benefit because they're only able to make food and photosynthesize through the waste products produced by corals' metabolic processes. And then you have the situation where corals, they're like, I, uh, um, I need oxygen. I need some extra nutrients from y'all. Also, gag, right, is like corals are active at night yeah so during the day is when all these microalgae microscopic algae are doing their most doing the do 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 right getting all that energy and then at night corals come alive spread their wings not wings spread their tentacles and reach out into the water column and grab that good good food that they metabolize and to be honest that's about it that's all y'all need to know about corals it's like an intro Two corals, one on one. Welcome to uh, my classroom. 
Just kidding, y'all. I really don't want this to feel like a lecture or like a classroom or anything like that. I just want to like shoot the shit and share fun stuff that I think is cool and just like a space to talk about it. So we're done talking about corals now. We're going to move into our next segment, which is Experiment 626. Y'all, welcome to Experiment 626, the part of the show where we break down uh, scientific research and research papers and we talk about them and yeah. But (laughs) you're like, it's March, so I don't have to listen about black people anymore. Wrong. Wrong, wrong, especially on this podcast, we are going to be wrong and strong in our messaging. And you are going to, um, yeah, you're going to have to continue to engage with black history, uh, specifically black scholars who've been out here doing the most from the jump. And that's why this week I wanted to highlight the work of Joan Mural Owens. Again, head over to the Instagram if you want to like get some like base introduction to like who she is, what she does. But we're going to be talking about her research paper. So it's titled Let- Letipsamia Frankie, a new species of deep sea coral. And then it's like all these Latin names, which I won't try and uh, pronounce. Like, maybe I will. Okay, Co- Coelent- Coelenterata. Okay. Scaleractinia, Scaleractinia, okay, and then Microbacidae, Microbacidae, okay, Um, ask me to say those again and I can't, so, (laughs) again, you don't need to learn Latin to do science, but something I really want to bring up, so this research paper was from 1994, so this is the year I was born, and homegirl retired like the next year by like 1995 yeah sis was like um i'm done like she retired from full-time work i should say by 1995 as a scientist you're like never ever fully done and you'll like dip your toes into projects like here and there which i'm sure uh jones joan owens um mural did but in this for what we're talking about right now 1994 was like the end of her Full-time work, which was a gag, because imagine, like, the year that you... Or 1995, sorry, is the year that she retired. So imagine the year before you retire, you discover a new species. An entirely new species come through. That's a gag for me, especially considering the fact of how she went about discovering it. So... Joan Mural Orwins, she was not only the first black woman to receive a PhD in geology, but she was a pioneer in marine biology and was one of the first black marine biologists um, in in the game. And this is a huge gag to me because when I was reading about her life, I found out that homegirl had sickle cell. Ah! That, well, she had um, aspects of sickle cell disease or, or condition. It's not a disease. Anyway, y'all, if you don't know, sickle cell is just this condition. It's just like a, it's a red blood cell condition where it makes it hard for your body to, like, oxygenate itself or certain parts of its body regularly. Um, so this actually prevented her from scuba diving because, as y'all know, or maybe you don't know, but when you're scuba diving, um, your blood oxygen levels 
uh, vary significantly depending on the depth that you're at. And so there's a lot of risk involved the, with scuba diving and maintaining oxygen levels and blood and da-da-da-da-da. I'm not a scuba diver yet, so I can't give you all the deets about that. But the gag was, Sis is discovering new species of coral unable to scuba dive. She wasn't even able to get into the water and, like collect her specimens. So how did she do it? How did she go about discovering this new species of coral? Well, she done gun collect all the rummagings and rough have Jews of rough had Jews? What the hell was that word? Refugees, I think is what I was trying to say, but again, doesn't really apply here. Anyway, she started rummaging through the samples collected by all these like white explorers and expeditionists who um, gave up their coral samples to the Smithsonian Museum. So she actually used samples, specific specimens of corals from the Smithsonian Institute, um, and these samples were collected by a British expedition back in 1880. And it was through her, like, carefully going through and analyzing the samples that she was actually able to discover not only an entirely new genus of corals, so that, sorry, I just cut off the mic a little bit there, but um, essentially what that is, I, mm, I don't know if I'm going to explain this really well. Essentially, a genus is like a, a larger category that contains many species that are similar, but they're different enough that they're like, they're, they're not the same species, but they fall under the same umbrella, which, and that umbrella is named a genus. So for Joan Owens, uh, I don't know what is happening with my mic here, sorry, but for Joan Owens, right, she not only discovered this new genus, so an entire new category of corals, but then she discovered two species specifically within this new genus. And, uh, mm, sorry, a lot of weird sounds just came out of my mouth and into your ears. I realize I'm speaking with, like, a lot of Latin and a lot of terms that maybe are not easy to digest. So let's, like, make it a bit more nice. Um, so deep-sea button corals, that was her focus. That was what she studied. That was what she was able to look through the past samples from, like, these old expeditions by these, like, racist white colonists and yeah she was able to do all this work and what's really cool about this work was that she was the actually the individual who found out that this this specific like genus and like species of stony corals that she was working with they were distinctive from other corals in the sense that they don't form colonies do you remember in animal of the week we were talking about like those colonies yeah okay great yeah they don't do that right so very weird very bizarre and joan was like Mm, I need to get to the bottom of you, the bottom of this mystery. So now what I'm actually going to do is, y'all, it took me so long to find her actual research paper. Okay, so this paper was put out or finally published, released to the public in 1994. Okay, so this was about, what, I'm now 26? So it's about 26 years old, and it's like, Finding a paper from 26 years ago shouldn't be that hard, and it isn't when the researcher is white or when there's, like, a white body of researchers who's, like, contributed to this work. But, of course, the individual who discovered an entirely new genus of coral has had their research suppressed. And it literally took me, like, hours, hours to find her research paper um, accessible online, mind you. And then when I did, it was, like in this archive 
uh, it was just, uh, I just, I really hate the way that science treats black women and black people in general, like, just give our fucking data and our research the same respect and light of day that you do for everyone else. Like, it just, it's so frustrating, the fact that this took a million years to find. But, okay, I'm going to go ahead and read some excerpts from the paper herself, from the paper itself. So the first abstract, I'm going to read, actually, the abstract to y'all. And the abstract reads like this. Letuspsamia franki, a new species of deep-sea solitary corals belonging to the family Microbacidae, is described and figured. This new species resembles the type species Elformosimia uh, in having highly perforated septa and wall and well-developed deltas. It differs in the distinctly beaded appearance of its septa, deltas, and columnula. Its slightly biconvex corallum with prominent basal apex, basal apex, sorry, its projection of costae beyond septa at the distal edge forming a narrow marginal shelf and its more open basal wall. It is recent in origin and is found in the Indian Ocean off the southeast coast of Africa at depths varying from approximately 50 to 650 meters. It thus falls within both the geologic and basemetric ranges of the type species El Formosissima, which I'm sure was discovered by an Italian. For Formosissima? That just sounds Italian to me. But y'all, okay, even reading that, like, did that sound interesting to you? No. Did that sound particularly, like, grabby and, like, attention grabby? No. Like, it just didn't ring me in. And this is my beef with science as a whole, is that, like, all the time we will we will choose words and fill in all these words and that like make ourselves sound smart and give legitimacy to our own research but it's like okay sis the the point of this story is to try and get other people aware right to try and spread this information to disseminate this knowledge so why don't we use terms that people understand granted a lot of the terms that i talked about in this abstract specifically they're actually just the names of like coral body parts and because, I mean, I'm not a coralogist or whatever, I'm a marine biologist, I should say, I don't know the body parts of corals, so I'm sure you listening also didn't recognize the body parts of corals. So I'm wondering if maybe there's a way that we could talk about corals that's a little bit easier for individuals to understand, even if it's switching the body parts to, like, human terms, like this basal apex. I don't know if you could, like, replace it with, I don't know, like a chest or something. I don't know. Find ways to make comparisons, but we're going to continue with the paper. And we're just gonna uh, read the description of the new coral species that she found because I just love I just love the description. I was reading it. I was like, oh my gosh, I don't think I understand any of it. Um, but I just like how like her passion very clearly comes out in this, and she's very much no nonsense in her writing. It's very like this period, this period, this comma, and that period. It's very like to the point. There's not a lot of fluff, which I appreciate, especially with scientific writings, because I don't want fluff. Um, so yeah, let's read some of the descriptions. So actually, no, just one of the descriptions. So she goes on to describe the Letispapsmia Okay, I'm not going to try and say that word. She goes on to describe the new Frankia coral species that she discovered, and she describes it as following. Description, period. Corallum, large. Loose, slightly biconvex, with narrow but prominent shelf, period. Wall thin, comma, highly perforate, period. Collicular depression, deep, narrow, elongate, period. 
fusion of proximal margins of tertiary septa with inner edges of secondary septa form broad, porous, coarsely dentate deltoid structures. Diameter of specimen, 10.5 to 31 millimeters. Height, 3 to 1.1 millimeters. That makes 3 to 11 millimeters. Okay, that's what it is. Anyway, I'm going to stop reading now because I'm sure y'all are like, that. this is not um, what I signed up for when I listened to Sabuma Foolish. But it is. It is what you signed up for, okay? Just listen to the words of black scholars, understand research papers, get into it, honey. And I just decided to read the description one because, like, little blast from the past, little Lego C, how scientific papers were being written in 1994 varies very little from the way they're being written now, which to me is a problem because so much has changed since my birth. But it also goes to, why I described it is it also goes to sort of showcase um, Joan Owen's, like her writing style in the sense that it's very no-nonsense and directly to the point, which I think it's, it's true for all science, but I think it's especially true for black scholars and a, a million times compounded if you're a black femme scholar because of the ways in which we are so heavily scrutinized and challenged and critiqued um, within our own fields that we often have to develop this like hyper simplification of our data to the point where there is no rebuttal, there is no room for debate. It's simply data presented as authentically and as efficiently as possible, which I just, I, it's something that I've become really cognizant of when reading black scholars specifically. You could, they just, they just get straight to the point. It's no holes bars and they don't like beat around the bush or fluff around with a lot of floofity doofy words, um, which I appreciate, which I appreciate. I want to kind of end here this experiment 626 section because we've been going up we've been talking about it for a little while now and I think it's time to move on to our next section but before we do I quickly just wanted to read the acknowledgments of this paper and that's because not only do a lot of research papers that you read by like white scientists and just other people in general they don't actually take the time to do an acknowledgement section um, at least from my Understanding. Granted, it is now common practice. Like, you do see a lot of acknowledgement sections, but I just appreciated the fact that this one was so specific to Owens and her life. So she writes, I wish to thank S.D. Cairns of the Smithsonian Institution for making available to me the specimens used in this study. Again, y'all couldn't scuba dive because of sickle cell, so had to use specimens... I'm just, I'm so impressed. I'm just so blown away. The fact that you went out there, got your specimens, looked at them, and then you were able to find out that they, they were entirely new species just sitting in, like, some dusty cupboard collecting dust. Like, ah! Sis, yes, thank you. Okay, anyway, she continues on. DA Dean of the Smithsonian Institution for his assistance in thin-sectioning some of the specimens, and Frank A. Owens which is her husband, that she named the new species of coral after. And she also wants to make, uh, she says here, I also wish to make special acknowledgement to D.F. Squires, whose unfinished work on macrobid corals inspired me to undertake my own study of this group. 
Joan Morrell Owens, you a true inspiration. I'm very, very moved and motivated by the legacy that you've left. And I hope that as a black scholar coming up into this space that I can that I can fulfill these these shoes that you have left behind because they are big and I hope I can only hope that within my scientific career I can discover an entire new species. Wow. All right, y'all, enough of me and enough of this. Let's get into the part y'all been all waiting for the whole episode. What's the sitch? One thing I like about this podcast is that it's um, controlled entirely by me. So each episode, I mean, I have like a general framework and rules that I kind of like to follow, but I just like the idea that like some sections can be longer or shorter each week and things can change and flow. And I'm going to try and be a bit better because I do want these episodes to be like 30 minutes or so. I just know from like the own my own podcasts that I listen to, I'm not fully paying attention for like hours at a time. So I don't want to expect the same from y'all. And yeah, that's why this week's uh, What's the Sitch is going to be a little bit shorter so that I can keep it kind of within that time frame. Because it's going to be a question that I actually want to pose y'all. It's kind of like a conflict I want you to like sit with and think about. Um, and it's very much on this theme. I mean, today, I guess we're like, today's, I guess we're going to call this episode like something, something ocean because we're just talking about the oceans nonstop today. Um, coral. Coral is the theme of this week's conflict as well. I know, sorry. If y'all were looking for like variety or versatility in this episode, you are not going to find it. We are staying on brand and the brand is coral. So why is this a conflict? Why am I bringing it up in What's the Sitch? Well, this is the story, right? And maybe a lot of you listening haven't heard of this phenomenon called coral bleaching so I'll kind of give like a brief background into it and then explain uh, the sort of conflict behind it so like y'all remember that we were talking about corals earlier they have that symbiotic relationship that they form with the microscopic algae so gag is that when that symbiotic relationship becomes stressed so it can be stressed by like warmer temperatures it can be stressed by pollution right any way that it gets stressed out the algae just leave they straight up like just vacate the coral they're like bye <laughs> sis no, rent's too high, living in Vancouver, got to go, moves to Montreal. And so then you have this situation, right, when all the algae leave the coral, that the coral can become bleached or appear to be very white. Because I, I, And I think, I mean, this is probably my fault, but I don't think I mentioned this in the Animal of the Week section, but the algae are the, is what gives the coral its color. It's what gives the coral that lifelike look. So when you look at coral reefs especially and you see all those varying degrees of colors and shades those are all that's all because of the algae that's doing the work and me and filling in that skeletal structure with these very very vibrant colors so when the algae leaves the color leaves too then you're just left with the skeleton gag <laughs> so that's bleaching but something that a lot of people don't recognize or know is that when 
coral bleaching happens or if you see a bleached coral, it doesn't mean that the coral is dead yet, actually. Yet. Key word on the yet. So it's not dead because corals can survive a bleaching event, but they are under more stress and are subject to mortality without that algae, right? Imagine if you, for example, were walking around and there's like this little hamster that was just like in your body and it was like cooking up meals and sending it directly to your stomach and you just like were like living your best life and it was like amazing all of a sudden bam that hamster's dead and you're like i'm so hungry and like sure you can like find your own food sure to like a point but like you've now lived with this hamster for so long like since birth so it's like how effective are you going to be at like feeding yourself right um prolonged especially if you don't get another hamster in there right and that's what's happening to the coral sorry that was a very weird analogy <laughs> i'm realizing but i'm um i'm i'm gonna stop apologizing for things that i do it's just it is it's me it's what's happening it's how my brain works take it or leave it so now let's move into the part of like why this is a conflict right because Obviously, I mean, it's a conflict under the umbrella category of climate change, but we have to understand that it's not just warmer waters that are causing bleaching events, right? If we actually look back to like 2010, it was cold water temperatures in the Florida Keys that caused that massive coral bleaching event, right? That resulted in like a lot of coral deaths. And researchers have been able to see that both cold stress events and warm stress events can make coral susceptible to this bleaching or results in that algae like moving out of the coral skeleton. But I'm realizing now maybe we should talk briefly about the other ways in which coral bleaching can happen because some of these ways you're directly responsible for. So, for example, extreme low tides, exposure to the air during extremely low tides can cause bleaching in shallow corals. You're not responsible for tides. Like last I, last I checked, you were not the moon, mama, so you're good there. You can't really do much about tides. Overexposure to sunlight. when so So when temperatures are high and like, the solar rays are like just beating down, coming through, it can actually contribute to uh, bleaching of shallow water corals. Gag is, none of y'all are the sun, last time I checked, so don't worry about that. Runoff and pollution. Ding, 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 ding. We have a source of conflict. So storm-generated precipitation that can rapidly dilute ocean waters and runoff can carry pollutants, right? And these can bleach near shore corals. So corals that like either grow along the shoreline or not too far away from the shoreline are significantly impacted by what we put in the water and by precipitation events. So for those that don't know, when it like I need to stop saying that also. I feel like there's something weirdly, I don't like the way that comes out of my mouth. For those that don't know, shut up, just say the facts. Uh, okay, so there exists this phenomenon in the natural world when you have like a lot of rain coming down all at once, so like heavy precipitation events, like we have here in Vancouver often, you can get a lot of overland flow or a lot of runoff, right? So that's essentially like the water doesn't have enough time to seep into the soil or seep into the ground, and it just starts flowing over the surface of the ground, over the, over the soil or what have you. 
And so when it's flowing over the surface like that, it's carrying a lot of pollutants, it's carrying a lot of debris, it's carrying a lot of chemicals, for example, that don't get like absorbed into the ground or the soil profile and get washed out to sea. Bam, what do we have now? Situations where our pollutants and our runoff is now impacting coral. So runoff specifically that I can think of kind of close to home, phosphates. We actually had a similar example here in Ontario with the Great Lakes, with the death of the Great Lakes happening for the past like 20 years actually, where phosphates that have been slowly leaked into the lake actually create these algal blooms. So situations where algae is able to like really, really quickly grow all of a sudden because it has like all of these really cool nutrients that it needs to grow, but then it grows too quickly and too much, and then it dies, bam. And when algae dies, oh boy, does it love to suck up the oxygen in the room, or in this case, the parcel of water. And so you can have entire areas that are become hypoxic, or that's just a fancy way of saying without oxygen. And those areas become what we call dead zones. So those are dead zones that can happen in lakes predominantly um, where it's just there's no oxygen. So you can't have anything living there. And things that are currently living there, they die. So like fish, turtles, plants, all that good, good, just dead. Because what? Phosphates run off. That's right. So drawing this more closely to the ocean, how is this happening? Like what is it that you can actually do to change it? Check your sunscreen. Check what it is that you as a human are bringing into the ocean world because things can run off not only from soil and like grounds and stuff but they can run off your body as well and it doesn't need an intense precipitation event for that to happen you just need to be negligent and walk up into the ocean like la 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 i don't have any impacts on anything in order for you to actually negatively impact things. So one of the big ways that I see this happening, especially is with like sunscreens, tanning oils, all that good, good beach nonsense, that goes into the water and can impact corals. So if you're listening to this and you're like, but what can I do to help the corals? Well, be conscious of what you're bringing into their environment. Step one. Step two, if you're like a farmer listening to this, hey, glad to have you here. Um, but just consider the type of fertilizer that you're using that will eventually become runoff, right? So also on that same trend, maybe avoid using herbicides, pesticides, and not just farmers too, because I know y'all gardeners and lawn people and like landscapers be out here doing the most with herbicides and pesticides. So like cut it cut it. The price is way too high. You need to cut it. But if we really want to solve this coral bleaching problem, right, gang, um, it ultimately comes down to how we tackle and address climate change. So how fast the world is shifting these average temperatures. And there's, granted, not a lot you can do individually in terms of like you, a single individual stopping climate change, but you as an individual can join collective actions that will help us move away from this rapidly changing climate situation that we're in towards a more climate conscious world, right? Where we have developed climate conscious, climate smart policies, as well as institutions, as well as mean, economic systems that are reparative, is that a word? That repair instead of simply extract and exploit 
um, and restore. Restorative, that's the word that we're looking for. Anyway, so yeah, just I know I'm also in the same boat of like, oh my gosh, my individual actions will not have any impact, but a lot of individuals acting similarly, that is collective action. Collective action does have a significant impact. So we're gonna wrap up here because I could be I could go into tangents about talking about climate change forever, and I think I have overshot my timing for the episode. So if you have any questions about today's content, if you have any concerns, if you have any like critiques, or if you just want to like send me a message, you know, go and do that to Bastos. No, that's my personal email. <laughs> Don't send it there. I will delete it. Send it to the podcast email. So that's jauntingj at gmail.com. So again, that is jauntingj at gmail.com. J-A-U-N-T-I-N-G period J-A-Y at gmail.com. Send your science research paper send your wildlife story send your interaction send like literally whatever you have send it to me um, when it comes to animals and it will i'll put it up on the podcast we'll talk about it we'll have a little feature moment also if you have kids and they have animal stories please send me those i love kids uh that's a super tangent so maybe wrap it up and just know that thank you all for listening i appreciate you I appreciate you being here and f- supporting me. I, yeah, it actually just means a lot to me um, that I'm able to do this and that it resonates with other people. So thank you. And if you would like to support this podcast and see it continue, see it thrive, see it grow and expand as the year progresses, uh, consider becoming a Patreon. A Patreon, wow, I can't even speak. Consider becoming a patron at patreon.com slash jauntingj. I have some extra content over there for y'all. Um, each week, I like upload, you know, a little bit about each episode. Provide some sources, some links, some video tools. You know, get you get your learning a little bit more supplemented. And I also just like share cool parts about my life, cool animal facts, things that are happening. It's essentially like a community uh, for wildlife learning and communication. So consider joining. Hop on the Patreon. And y'all, like, a lot of it is free. Like, some of the things I'll post and it'll be, like, exclusive for patrons for, like, a certain period of time. But then it just, like, releases to the general public on Patreon. So all you need to do is go to the Google Store or the App Store, download Patreon, the app, and just search Jaunting J. And you'll be able to, like, see some content already. Wow, amazing. Um, But again, we know that Patreon and monetary support is not the only way to show support. So please. Please, please, please share this podcast with a friend. Tell your mom. Tell your aunt. Tell your dog, honestly. Like, we want listeners of all species and genders and races. And, yeah, I'm getting so loony toony towns over here. So I'm going to wrap it up. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Zabuma Foolish. And I'll catch you all next week for more rambly nonsense. (laughs) Bye. So what's the sitch? Actually, really quickly before I say goodbye, I want y'all to go and check out the documentary Chasing Coral on Netflix. If you need a Netflix account, email the email I told you about and I'll send you my login information. Because, yeah, you need to watch this documentary. It's amazing if you want to learn more about corals. That's it. Okay, catch you next week. Bye.